We have a hymn in our hymnal uh, on page 123, and I'd like to refer to this a little bit here. I don't, I won't read the whole thing, but because it has, because it has five verses, uh, it starts out, though I speak with tongues of men, though I speak as angels, if I have not charity, I am become as nothing. I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal with the gift of prophecy. Uh, still, I am as nothing. So no matter what we have in our gifts that God has granted to us, uh, if we do not have love, uh, we are as nothing. This comes from 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. We also call it the love chapter. Verse 4 says, Charity rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth believes and bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things, never thinketh evil. If I have not charity, then I am as nothing. We see from this verse, as well as other parts of the the chapter, that love is a very positive thing. It has a positive approach toward those around us. And when we sing these hymns or we read these words, do we really think what they mean and how they apply to us? It's so easy to think, well, I have all those things. That applies to me without thinking more deeply. Where do I come up short? Where might I improve myself? Where might I grow with the help of God? I think it's very important that we think about what we're singing as well as what we are reading. In today's sermon, I'm going to focus on one phrase in 1 Corinthians 13 that's found in that song as well, and that is that love thinks no evil. Love thinks no evil. From time to time, we have people who get a bee in their bonnet, as we sometimes refer to it, over something as a result of violating this key ingredient to love. Instead of thinking positively, an individual may think Uh, of something negatively, think of evil. A good example of that was an individual who started attending one of our congregations uh, several years ago. And this person had uh, come out of Worldwide and had known what our standards were in Worldwide. But he came to services and was not wearing a a suit and a tie. And after a few weeks, one of the members, uh, out of the goodness of his heart, thought that maybe this man can't afford a suit or doesn't have one. Maybe he can afford it but may not have one. So he offered to give him a suit. Whether that was the best thing to do or the wisest thing is hard to say, but the, the fact is he did it out of the goodness of his heart. He, was, he had good motives, but this person was offended by it. And he wrote me a letter explaining what happened, and he said, Uh, It's not that I don't have suits. I I do have suits. I used to wear them all the time. But he felt that this person was looking down upon him, and he never came back. Well, if it had been a brand-new person who had never been a part of the church, we, we might think of it a little bit differently. But this was an individual, as we often run into, who is a part of Worldwide, and they're just not going to have anybody tell them what to do. And we we see that uh, from time to time. Not everybody that comes out of Worldwide, but I I think in in the total uh, 
statement of the letter. I don't have it before me. I don't think I have the letter anymore. But in reading the letter, uh, this individual had an attitude. And he came with an attitude. Instead of looking on the best, perhaps thinking this person may not have been wise in in offering that. I'm not trying to make a judgment on it. But if, if he thought that this person was maybe saying something that he shouldn't, he could have at least thought of the positive effect that this person was trying to be helpful, showing love in that way. But instead, he thought evil of that particular gesture by this individual. Adam Clark's commentary says this about 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And the phrase, believes no evil or thinks no evil, <clears throat> says, believes no evil where no evil seems. In other words, where there's no evidence of evil. Never supposes that a good action may have a bad motive. His heart is so governed and influenced by the love of God that he cannot think of evil but where it appears. So it's all right to think of evil where it does appear. But I think all of us would recognize that there was no evil intent on the part of the member. The original implies that he does not invent or devise any evil or does not reason on any particular act or word so as to infer evil from it. For this would destroy his love to his brother. The scripture provides several examples where people misjudged a situation and imputed uh, evil and violated the love principle, thinks no evil. Let's notice one of them in 1 Samuel, the first chapter, 1 Samuel 1. This was where one of the priests had come up to uh, the place to offer sacrifices and to uh, conduct business. Uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. I'm sorry, I got the wrong, wrong chapter. That's, I'm looking at First Samuel. Sorry about that. Now, there was a certain man, verse 1, of... Ramoth in uh, Ramothim Zeboam of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of so and so, and etc., etc. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Now, when Elkanah went up to offer uh, at uh, that area, then Penina, his wife, and uh, for all her sons and daughters, uh, she, she had children, but Hannah was barren. So he would give her a double portion, for he loved Hannah. Although the Lord had closed her womb, and her uh, rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the eternal had closed her womb. So, obviously, this was a bad situation when you have two women in the same household. Uh, You have these rivalries that take place, and one was not very nice to the other. Instead of understanding that some things you have no control over, uh, she persecuted her. And it was very difficult for Hannah. And so Hannah finally 
It says uh, it happened as she continued praying. She went there to pray, and it says, uh, before the eternal, and Eli watched her mouth. Verse 13, now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. He made that assumption. He may have had reasons why he thought that, but he didn't know. And he said to her, notice how gruffly he spoke, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the eternal. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. So she was pouring out her heart to God. Can you imagine what that would be like if you're pouring out your heart to God and somebody accuses you of being drunk and being a wicked woman? That would really hurt. And yet she did not get offended by it, apparently. She simply explained the situation. But Eli made a judgment there. He could see that she was her lips moving, but he didn't know the reason why. And instead of thinking the best... He really thought of evil. He assumed that there was something evil going on there. And he violated that principle of love. A very famous example, I think this one's already famous, but we have another one back in Joshua, 22nd chapter. And this is a well-known example, but we need to be reminded of it from time to time. We need to think about how these things may apply to us. Here in the 22nd chapter, we have the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who had settled on the east side of the Jordan River. And as a result of their faithfulness in helping the other tribes to settle the other side, uh, it was time for them to go back uh, to their land and to settle that part of the world. And so when they left their brethren after many days, uh, it says in verse uh, 4, and this was a warning for them, Now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he promised them, Now, therefore, return and go to your tents and to the land of your possessions, which Moses, the servant of the eternal, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. And the warning came, verse 5, but take careful heed to do the commandment of the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That was a warning for them to be sure that they did that, not to stray from the truth as they went back. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. So the half-tribe of Manasseh and uh, the others uh, went back to the other side. And verse 9, So the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And it says, verse 10, when they came to the region of the Jordan, 
which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. I, have you ever noticed how, how much detail the Bible does give? I, I, I was, this is a side point, but I, I was reading through Chronicles here not too long ago, and you have all these people being related to so-and-so. If you were going to fake a document, this would not be the way to do it. How many people have started reading the Bible, get into some of these details, some of this repetition, and just give up? So if you were going to fake a document, this would not be the way to go about it. In reality, that's one great proof that this is the Word of God. So it's interesting that it always lists all three groups, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of, of, uh, of Manasseh. Verse 11, now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan and the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. And the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest of the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead. Notice again, it just it lists all three, all, always there, or virtually always. And it says, and with him ten rulers, one ruler each from the chief house of every tribe of Israel, at least of every tribe that was on that side. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. Then they came to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, verse 16, Thus says the whole congregation of the Eternal, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel, to turn away this day from following the Eternal, and that you have built for yourselves an altar, that you might rebel this day against the Eternal? That was the assumption they made. That was... Was that thinking the best or was that thinking evil? But you must turn away, verse 18, this day from following the eternal. And it shall be, if you rebel today against the eternal, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. He'll be angry with all of us. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the eternal, where the eternal's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the eternal, nor rebel against us, by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the eternal, our God. Verse 20. They give examples of, uh, or the example of Achan, and how that affected the whole of Israel when he uh, stole something and, and hid it in his tent when he was not to do so. He said, did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass and the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel, and that men did not uh, perish alone in his iniquity? In other words, others perished, not just Achan, but others as a result of his sin. Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, verse 22, the eternal God of gods, the eternal God of gods, he knows, and let Israel itself know, 
If it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the eternal, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the eternal or uh, if uh, to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings or if it uh, to offer peace offerings on it, let the eternal himself require an account. But in fact, verse 24, in fact, we have done it for fear. For a reason, saying, in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants because of the division of the the tribes uh, with the river, uh, Jordan there. And, of course, the Sea of Galilee up there uh, is dividing those people. And so he says, uh, you may come along and and say that uh, we're not a part of you, for the Eternal has made the... I'm sorry, go back to verse 24. Uh, But in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying, In time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, What have you to do with the Lord or the eternal your God, eternal God of Israel? For the eternal has made the Jordan a barrier between you and us, uh, your children, you children of Reuben, children of Gad. You have no part in the eternal. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the eternal. In other words, we wanted to stay united with you. We didn't want to be separated from you. And we knew that with a natural barrier there of the Jordan River, which, by the way, is not all that that big, but it is a natural barrier, that there might be a division. And so they built this monument, is what it was, not to offer sacrifices, but a monument to remind them of their connection. It says, therefore, we said, verse 26, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not to, for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us that we may perform the service of the eternal before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the eternal. So, in other words, that they could go back to Israel or the main part of Israel on the other side of the Jordan and offer sacrifices where they were going to be offered instead of uh, separating them. So they had no intention of sacrificing on this altar. It was a monument. And so they went back and told the rest of the uh, tribes of Israel what was, was up and everything was okay. But this is a prime example of the whole of Israel thinking evil. They heard a report, it spread from one person to another, and the end result was that everybody <clears throat> got all upset, and we were convinced that this was going to happen, and they uh, were about ready to go to war with their brethren. In Acts, the 23rd chapter, Acts 23, we have another example. In this <clears throat> particular case, it's a little bit different. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, thinking no evil, but there's a, a lesson here in this for us. Acts 25, verse 1. I'm sorry, Acts 23, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias 
commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? When, when somebody strikes you on the cheek or however it was that he, he struck there, probably stung pretty good. And he reacted naturally and normally uh, that you're violating, the, you're, you're judging me and you're violating the law of God. This was something that was not to be done. And he understood the law. But those that stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. But it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, this is, this is very interesting. It is not that Paul uh, assigned an evil motive there, but he reviled the high priest. He did not know who he was. And, of course, we could look at it that way, that the high priest and others had already condemned Paul. They thought evil of Paul, but that's, uh, that's another story. But what I want to bring out here is that Paul understood that we are not to speak evil of a ruler of our people. And this is perhaps a little bit of a side point, but I think it's a very important point, especially in the world in which we live today. How do we as individuals view our leaders? I think the tendency that most of us have is to look at some people as good guys and some people as bad guys. Or really probably more precisely, we don't really like either side of things, but we, we recognize that one side is more correct when it comes to moral issues than the other side. Although, when it comes to actual behavior, uh, that's not always the case. And the truth of the matter is, in politics today, and this will come out in the news all the time, but this person is trying to move further to the right or further to the left to position himself. And what they're really saying is, this fellow is going to lie to you to make you look or make you think that he is more like you. That's really what it, what it is. Politicians probably in many cases enter into the profession because they want to make a difference. They want to do something good. I remember reading an article in, we used to call it useless news and we'll report. Uh, it, it was, I like that better than time and some of the others. But nevertheless, uh, it, it, it pointed out that many people go to Washington with very good intentions. They want to do what's good, what's right. But over a period of time, they begin to lobby for their side of things because they're forced to do so. One of our ministers used to be a politician, and he pointed that out, that there was a very good bill that the opposition had put up, but his... Uh, his uh, the leader of his party uh, told him that he had to vote against it. And he said, why? It's a good bill. Well, it's the opposition, so you have to be against it. And when I asked him, when he got out of politics, came to the church and he got out, I said, what was the best thing that, that you ever accomplished in, uh, in being there? He said, getting out. And he didn't hesitate a second. It's an ugly business, but people go there with... With good intentions many times, they want to change the country in a positive way. But as this article said, they go there and then they lock into their side of things 
And then pretty soon it's their departments. I'm not talking just about the politicians, but people that work in government. They begin to lobby for their particular uh, department and then their particular group, and then eventually it's all self-centered, taking care of themselves with their, their pension or whatever rights they might have. And how it starts out with good intentions and moves to total selfishness. Well, our leaders, as we know, are not perfect. But God tells us in his word that we're not to speak evil of our leaders. And it's so easy for you and for me to get polarized. That's the way the whole whole world is. So I could throw out a couple names here, which I'll do. Uh, what, what do you think of Donald Trump? What do you think of Hillary Clinton? I'll just use those. For some people... Mr. Trump can do nothing right, no matter what he does. And for the rest, Mrs. Clinton has no redeeming values. And yet that's not realistic. Everybody has some redeeming value. Well, I think they do. Um, I think we should think they do. If we're going to think no evil. But it's hard, isn't it? Whatever side you might be on, those are just two names. We could pull up a whole lot of other names. But in our minds, humanly speaking, and Satan stirs this up, if we don't like this person, he or she can do nothing right. And sometimes the person that we like can do nothing wrong. We have to to judge fairly. And it's very difficult, isn't it, in the climate in which we live today. Do we look at our leaders positively as much as we possibly can? Or do we revile them? When we look at the behavior of our national leaders, it's difficult to keep our tongue, isn't it? I know it is for me. It's difficult to be truly objective and to follow God's law, which says not to speak evil of a leader of our people. And Proverbs 24 There's a very important principle here. Proverbs 24, verse 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the eternal see it and it displeases him and he turn away his wrath from him. And the the sense is that he may be turning his wrath toward you. So do we rejoice when our enemy falls? Do we rejoice when... Somebody on the other side of the aisle that we really don't like stumbles or falls or gets caught up in a scandal. Right now, we find that more and more individuals are being accused of uh, various behaviors that are inappropriate. Do we kind of, oh, that's really good when, when somebody that we don't like or some ideology that we don't like that that person stands for gets caught up in something like that? Are we rejoicing over it? Or are we sad? Sad that somebody allowed himself or herself to do something that is being destructive for the individual. Sometimes it's easier when somebody gets sick or gets injured to suddenly think a little bit differently about the individual. I don't know about you, but when I hear of some individual that I may not particularly like, 
because of his behavior or whatever it might be, but when you hear of, of a person that is sick or injured in some way, does your heart go out to them? I don't think that we really wish certain things on anybody. What is it in Psalm 35, is it, that uh, David is, is praying there? Uh, I think it's Psalm 35. I hope it's Psalm 35, it is. Um, verse 9, it says, My soul shall be joyful in the eternal. Psalm 35, uh, verse 9, It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Eternal, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. This is what happened to David. And think about all the things that David went through and how Saul and then later on his, his own children and various other ones were always fighting against him. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. He he was a servant to Saul, but he was rewarded evil for good. Verse 13, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting. Do we ever do that for those that we may not care for? Those that we see as maybe an enemy to us? Those who might uh, reward us evil for good? Do we think of it that way? And my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. Obviously saying that he wasn't his friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. These are lessons for us. Lessons that deal with everyday life. How we approach life. And how we handle the problems that we have in our society today. Consider uh, television news, as I was referring to there, all the scandals that we see. Satan is a master to divide and conquer. He wants to divide us, and he wants to conquer us. And can we see that our nations are being divided But also because we're divided, or, or but also, yeah, because we are divided and cheer for our guys and revile the others. Do we do that? Do we cheer for, quote, our guys and revile the others? Do you ever hope for evil, that something would happen to an individual? Are there individuals who have no redeeming value in our eyes? Over in the book of Matthew, the fifth chapter, uh, there's a, a passage that I think puzzles people because we really don't understand what is, is being stated there, partly because it is the words that are used, the Hebrew being translated into English, and it's easy to, to misunderstand. But in verse 21 it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, so there is a time, there is a cause, uh, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire or Gehenna fire. Now, 
we, we can get all caught up in, in the words and the, the, the significance of it, but it's talking about a certain progressive attitude toward our brother. Uh, have you ever said, well, that's a real airhead? Uh, usually what we mean is empty-headed individual. There, there are times when we come across individuals in our personal lives or we see them in in the news or someplace else, where we write off any possibility of them ever making anything of themselves in a physical way in this world or thinking that they're totally lost cause for the kingdom of God. The, the attitude that's being expressed here by you fool, uh, you know, God uses the word fool many times in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. But the, the sense that is used here, I, I believe this is correct, is that it is writing that person off as not being worthy of the kingdom of God. That person has no value. In other words, that comes to the point of total contempt for the individual. And it's easy in our world today to allow that attitude to enter into our thinking. But God tells us to think no evil. He wants us to think the best. Now, we're not to be Pollyannish. We're not to not recognize evil when it's there, but we don't need to read into everything uh, an evil intent. It's human nature to believe a bad report. In fact, that's what news is all about today. I was saying to my wife, news isn't really news. What, What it is is commentary that is promoting this view or that view, either liberal or conservative or, or someplace in between. But our news today has become a way of stirring people up to hate someone else. That's really what it is. And we need to stand back and say, wait a minute. Are these people manipulating me? I think we need to look at it that way to recognize the course of this world. I think that's one of the things that, probably a sermon that I, I want to give sometime in the near future, is the course of this world. What is the course of this world? It's so easy for us to get caught up with all the, the things that are going on in our world instead of standing back and saying, you know, stop. Let me off this merry-go-round. And I want to make decisions based on what God wants, not what Satan is trying to get me to think. It's, it's a real problem for us because we live in this society. We have to be here. In, in Proverbs, the 18th chapter, Proverbs 18, and verse 17, it says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And I don't know how many times in my ministry I've had somebody come to me with a story of something and you, you really feel like, oh, I've got to go out there and do something about this person. Until you hear their side of it, and then you say, oh, well, maybe it wasn't quite the same as, as I first heard. And so after a while, at least in the ministry, I think most of us get to the place where we might say, well, if everything you've said is as it is said, well, then we may have a problem here. But it's almost never exactly as it said. I don't mean that somebody is lying. I think that most of the time people tell the truth when it comes to certain things. For example, a, a problem between a husband and a wife in marriage counseling. What I've noticed is that each is telling the truth. They're just not hearing the other side 
and they're not telling the whole truth of the matter. And it's rather frustrating because neither one of them wants to change. They want, in marriage counseling, often it is bringing the ministry in as an ally against the other person. And when you hear how bad my mate is, then maybe you'll straighten him or her out. Uh, it's like we can gang up two against one. But I find that usually they're both telling a lot of truth. And you know what else is interesting? They're saying the same thing that we hear from so many other people. My husband does this. My wife does that. And, and you sit there and think, ooh, that sounds awful close to home. Uh, she's complaining about her husband, uh, about the way that my wife might have a problem with me. Uh, it, it's, it's quite revealing. But you hear that so many times. And, and the complaints that I might have about my wife, I hear from, from husbands. We're different, aren't we? We think differently. And Professor Higgins, why can't a woman think like a man, uh, just doesn't work. God didn't intend it that way for good reason. But somehow we all want the other person to think as we do. And it doesn't always work, does it? Um, the first one to plead his cause seems right. But when you hear the whole story, it's not always the same. When you hear a story from someplace, do you suddenly jump to conclusions and think evil? Or do you hold judgment and think, well, okay, there might be a problem here, but let me find out the whole story. Proverbs 25 and verse 8. Proverbs 25 and verse 8. It says, do not go hastily to court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? It's interesting that basically this, this very, very proverb uh, came to real life one time many, many years ago. It's when I lived up in Michigan, and uh, most of these individuals are no longer uh, with us. They're, they've died since then. But my wife and I went out to visit this lady. She lived in a, a very small mobile home. Uh, she had, I don't know how many cats. <clears throat> the place stunk so bad that my wife could hardly stand it, especially in the heat of the summer. And she, she was a member of the church, had been for many years, a faithful member. And on one of these visits, I don't know if my wife was there or one of the, uh, the other uh, members of the church, one of the deacons uh, was with me. But she asked me the question. She said, my neighbor just put up a fence. She lived out in the country. My neighbor just put up a fence on my property. What should I do? And I said, well, I really honestly don't know. Have you talked to your neighbor? Well, no, she, you know, she didn't want to talk to him um, for, for various reasons. I guess they didn't get along too well. And I said, well, I, I can't give you an answer to that, but I know somebody that can we had an elder in the church who was an engineer, civil engineer, and a surveyor. And I knew he would have an answer for this, and I went and talked to him, and he explained that if it's in the city, then it's, it, at least in, in Michigan at that time, if it's in the city, it, it always belongs to the, the person that it was their property. If it's in the country and you put up a fence 
then on somebody else's property, after seven years, it de facto becomes your property. And so I, um, I, I said, uh, you know, I wanted to make absolutely certain of it. So I, I went back and I told her that the answer that this man had given, and he said he'd be more than happy to come out and survey her property and make sure that it was all right. But as he said, if you allow it to stay, then you lose that property. And what you can do is cut down the fence. But he said, make sure it's on your property. So I went back and I talked to her. I said, are you sure this is your property? And she was absolutely certain. I said, look, this elder would be more than happy to come up and survey it for you just to be sure. Well, she didn't take that course of action. She called up one of our zealous church members who had a chainsaw. And, and it was... Uh, and it was not a metal fence, uh, the wire, I guess, was, but the, it was posts. It was be- nice, beautiful fence, a couple hundred yards long. And he took that chainsaw and just cut it all the way off, all the way. Well, the next thing she knew, she was in court. And she lost. It was not her property. But she was so sure that it was her property. If she'd have considered that maybe... This person had a right to do so and talk and work it out or or learn a little bit more. It would have been okay, but she was so sure that he was wrong. She was not thinking the best. She was thinking evil. This person had been a bad neighbor before, and she just knew that he was a bad neighbor then. So as it says there, try to work things out uh, before you, you end up going to court. Not only did she go to court, but the fellow who cut it down was in court. And so they had to uh, to pay to put it back up, which is probably a small price to pay for it. But nevertheless, God knows what he's talking about when he gives us these, these Proverbs. Proverbs 25, verse 8. Do not go hastily to court, or in this case, take hasty action that could put you in court. It's not exactly, but it's very similar. Now, worse yet, in our judgments, we tend to see only what we want to see. And I think we should be willing to admit that to ourselves, that we, we have that tendency as human beings to see what we want to see. We want it to turn out our way instead of necessarily the way that is, is not so uh, amenable to our desires. Let me show you an example of how one individual, a very famous individual, wanted things to work his way, and so he, he thought evil of another individual. Uh, Paul wrote the following in Romans, the third chapter, and verse 28. Romans 3, and verse It says, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith. And Martin Luther inserted the word alone, apart from the deeds of the law. We can also read in Romans, the fifth chapter, verse one. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It says we are justified by faith. Or in the previous verse, we're justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Uh, the deeds are gone, the works of the law. We can go over to Galatians, the second chapter. Galatians 2. And this is another thing that Paul said. Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. We have an article in the... uh, Global Church News, I guess it was, written by uh, John O'Gwen and I think uh, Carl McNair, uh, on the works of the law. They did find a, a manuscript that, that indicates that when it speaks of works of the law, ergon of the law, that there were certain points of it. There was a, a specific code that that falls in. However, when you read all of Galatians, you see that it doesn't always say works of the law, but it also says just by the law, uh, verse 10 of chapter 3, for as many as are of the works, well, that says works of the law, but uh, verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Now, I, I'm not going to give a whole sermon on the subject of Galatians, but it is clear that Paul was saying that we are not justified by the law, whether it's talking about a certain portion of the law or even the whole of the law. You cannot be justified by keeping the Ten Commandments because justification has to do with uh, being made right after you're already wrong. Uh, justification is, is having our past sins forgiven. Well, what is our, our sin? Well, breaking the law. So when you break the law the first time, you need justification. You need to be brought back into a right relationship with God. And the way you do so is not by keeping the law so meticulously that God owes it to you. No, you've brought the death penalty upon yourself. And so a justification is the past forgiveness of past sins. But now, uh, you know, how does that take place? Well, by the blood of Jesus Christ, by him shedding his blood on our behalf. So the law defines sin, but we're justified by faith in the blood of Christ, by his sacrifice. That does not mean that we don't keep the law anymore, as some people uh, like to portray it, that, well, we're justified, which means the law is done away with. Well, if the law is done away with, there's no more sin. And if Christ did away with the law in 31 A.D., then nobody has sinned since that time, since sin is a transgression of the law. So it, it's, it's a big subject. I don't want to go into too many details. So you get, get in the weeds here and pretty soon you can't get out. But the point is that Paul said that we're not justified by law-keeping, by works. So we go to the book of James. James. The second chapter. And here we have a little bit different approach to it. James 2, verse 14. 
What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Well, this would seem to contradict what Paul was saying. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needful for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's saying faith is not enough. Verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is a very difficult passage. Uh, in, in reality, it depends on how, how you're looking at it. I think that the best approach on this, there, there are a couple approaches to it, but I, I like the, um, just personally, I think this, this seems to fit better. The New American Standard has all of this in quotes. In other words, James is saying that this faith and works thing, someone would come along and they would present this argument. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. End of quote. So that's all within the quote. And it is saying that someone could come along and make this argument and it's a, it's a good argument. He says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And then he gives the example of Abraham. Our father, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, on the surface, it looks like Paul and James are at odds with each other. And there are those who will use that to say that the Bible is not valid or will use it as, as uh, Martin Luther did when he wrote the following. He says, when, um, he says, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. So he thought evil of James' gospel as an epistle of straw. He would like to just rip it out, no doubt, because it disagreed with his theory of faith alone. In reality, when you put the two together, they paint a more complete picture. I like to say it this way. I think I've mentioned it here before that Paul was speaking to the Catholics and James was speaking to the Protestants. <laughs> now, I, I know that there were no Protestants or Catholics back then. We know that. I understand that. But when you go to Israel, even to this day, and you see what Judaism is all about, it's ritual. And you go to the what we call the, the Wailing Wall. They call it the Western Wall of the temple. And it's set up so that they have a dividing uh, curtain for the, the men on one side, the women on the other side. You don't even get in there without uh, covering up if you, I think your shoulders, I think women have to cover the shoulders and men have to put one of these 
paper yarmulkes on their head if they don't have a regular cloth one in order to get up to that area. And it's, it's interesting because you have girls that are kind of standing on chairs looking over and seeing the guys on the other side, their, their boyfriends. At least I, I've seen that. Uh, I don't know if they still allow that. They might have raised the curtain. But, but what you see is them walking back and forth with these books, and they're, they're constantly bowing, and they're, they're, they're reading these scriptures. And so I asked our guide when we were over there, I said, why are they doing that? And, and bottom line was that they're buying favor with God. Every time they bow, that's like purchasing favor from God. And so Paul was talking to that audience there. James was talking to an audience that had cast off the law and didn't think that it was important to keep the law. So they're talking to two different audiences. I don't know how many times I've given a sermon, and then you sit down, and after services, somebody comes up, and they bring up something that you did not cover, or they thought you were neglecting something, and and probably was neglecting it. Because what happens, we, we, we are so focused on a particular message and, and focusing on that, we're not thinking of all the exceptions or all the, 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 the counterparts to it. And my defense is that that's what Paul did, and that's what James did. But to the individual who is looking for something that is evil, it's an easy target, isn't it? Uh, I remember an individual uh, who set himself up to be the church watchdog to maintain the purity of the doctrine. This person had come out of worldwide and seen what happened in worldwide, and he set himself up to be the watchdog. Now there are other extenuating circumstances that I won't go into, and frankly motivations that were quite transparent over a period of time. But I gave a sermon one time visiting this congregation, and I I talked about the importance of doing a work. That's what the whole subject of the sermon was, doing the work of God. And in it, I made a statement that I know I've made to all of you, and that is that if God is not calling everyone, why is he calling anyone? Now, the obvious implication is he's calling some of us now Because there is a work to do. He's not trying to save the world right now. He has a plan and a purpose he's working out. We also know that he is calling us so that we can be kings and priests, rulers in tomorrow's world. That's another part of it. But if we do what God wants us to do, salvation will be the product of it. But the reason he's called us now is to do the work and to prepare for the future. So much of Christianity is give your heart to the Lord and when you die, you'll be saved. In the meantime, let's have fun and have all this, uh, you know, Christian rock music and, and uh, a lot of happy, clappy stuff and that sort of thing that you find in some congregations, not all. And the people, I'm sure, mean well, but they're, they're there without the proper guidance. Now, if... It, in the statement, if God is not calling everyone, why is he calling anyone? This individual did not hear the sermon live. He wasn't there that day, but he heard a tape of it later. And he engaged me in a conversation on the Internet. And basically, what did you mean by that statement? 
And I thought that it was quite clear from the, the sermon, so I suggested that he go back and listen to the sermon again. And we had two or three exchanges, and finally he said, are you telling me that everybody is being called today? And I stopped beating around the bush at that time and, and said, of course not. Listen to the sermon again. The whole purpose is saying that we are called to do a work. And that's why God is not calling everybody, but he's calling some to do a work. Well, I think that was kind of the end of a long series of, of problems. Uh, I know at least one person knows who I'm talking about here uh, because he was a target of this individual's criticism. But he set himself up to be the watchdog. He was always looking for problems, always looking for the church to get off track. When the church gets off track, if I say when, if the church were to get off track, it'd be obvious, as it was before. When you start doing away the Sabbath and the holy days and laws of clean and unclean meats and the purpose of life and go back into keeping Christmas and Easter and Halloween and all the rest, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? In fact, you didn't have to go that far before it became obvious where the church was going. I remember in my last sermon that I gave in in uh, Kansas City, I, I, I just pointed out a number of the changes that had taken place, and I had uh, three questions. Why such massive changes? Where is it heading? And what should be our response? The why was clearly there was a, there was a hostility toward Mr. Armstrong and everything he taught. And secondarily, where is it headed? Right back into Protestantism. And what should be our response? We should never leave the truth. And I remember one lady afterwards, she said, I disagreed with everything you had to say. Well, in one way, I'd like to, to run into her again and, and say, okay, now these are my points, at least the first two. Uh, is there a hostility toward everything that God used Mr. Armstrong to, to bring to the church? And the second point, going back into process, how do, how do you deny that? It was so transparent. It was so obvious that that's the direction things were going. Now, in this individual, instead of... Uh, that uh, took exception to my words of God is not calling everyone, instead of trying to understand, instead of trying to figure, okay, now what is this person trying to say? What is the message? This individual is more intent on finding fault. And it wasn't just me. It was a lot of people that he found fault with uh, over a period of time. We have a lot of hate blogs out here. Uh, we have gossip columns uh, in the newspapers. And, and I just have a question. I want to present it to all of you. Is, is following, looking for information about the church, uh, following hate blogs, is that thinking no evil or expecting evil? I've never understood, I understand why sometimes people do follow some of the hate blogs to find out what's going on, what they're saying about us and that sort of thing. I, I don't. I really honestly don't. Why don't I? Because I know some of these people. And when a man is violating the Ten Commandments and doesn't even believe in God, why would I think that he's going to give me the truth as what's happening here. 
If his wife cannot trust him, then why should we? But people look to this stuff and they think, this is, this is where I'm going to find out what's really happening, what's really happening in the church. Not what they're saying, but what's really happening in the church. Well, <clears throat> is that 1 Corinthians 13.5? Or is that more Satan's way, the accuser of the brethren? We need to think about those things. Can you imagine how much more harmonious family life would be if everyone practiced the principle of thinking no evil? There are a lot of ways we could apply this, but how often do spouses uh, take offense because they misunderstand something and then say emotionally, you hate me or you don't love me or you're trying to wreck my career or I don't, whatever, it comes up. Sometimes those things happen. If we gave our mates the benefit of the doubt, and I think that probably many of us are guilty of that at uh, one time or another, how much more harmonious our, our marriages would be? How much better they would be? How much better would our children be if they really trusted their parents that they are that they love them and they care for them and they're trying to do what's right for them. I suppose that children could say, well, uh, how much better it would be if you trusted me instead of always thinking that I'm going to do something evil. Well, uh, we have to be balanced on all this and understand it, but uh, sometimes children think their parents are mean and that they're trying to wreck their lives. So they may say, well, you don't trust me when you just told them, no, they can't stay out till 3 in the morning with their boyfriend or girlfriend. The truth of the matter is that sometimes we don't trust our children, right? Some of our children. But more often than not, it's simply a matter that we recognize that they don't have the experience, they don't know the dangers that are out there, uh, they don't know themselves, They're not mature enough to make some decisions in life. The fact of the matter is that most of the time when mom or dad says no, it's for one reason. They love you. They care for you. They don't want to see you get hurt. It's not that they think that you're, you know, some evil kid. In fact, most parents really think more of their kids than sometimes they should. They trust their kids too much. But the fact of the matter is if we, instead of throwing accusations back at each other, uh, and, and it does go that way that sometimes parents uh, will think more, uh, they're not thinking as well of their children as they should. They, they have to, sometimes we have to give a little bit of space to our children. And my saying that means that all those who give a lot of space to your children will give more. And if I say some of you are giving too much space, then you'll go the other direction. You'll, you'll, so that's the way these, these sermons always go. But I guess that's thinking evil of you, isn't it? <laughs> I'm just speaking on experience. However, okay, I'll have to repent of one more thing. 
But parents must not assume that their children have evil intentions, nor should children think that mom and dad are just trying to be mean to you or don't love you. They, they do love you. And don't ever allow anybody else to put that thought in your mind that this guy down the street or this girl or whatever loves you more than your parents do. Your parents love you. I learned that when my mother told me that my father loved me. I never heard him say it. But it hit like a ton of bricks. I never thought of it. But looking back, I realized he did. Kind of like Mr. Hall's father with the tools. He cared for his character, not just his tools, his his father's tools, but he cared for his character. Does this mean that we are to walk through life with rose-colored glasses? Well, Proverbs 22, verse 3. Proverbs 22, verse 3. And by the way, I, I left that out. I was going to mention about Martin Luther uh, coming to a wrong conclusion there. I hope all of you are following Dr. Meredith's series on the Protestant Reformation. Uh, he's moved on from Luther, but uh, very interesting uh, history there. I hope all of you are reading that. But here in Proverbs 22, verse 3, it says, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Now, God wants us to have our eyes wide open. He wants us, us to think positively. He wants us to think no evil. But he doesn't mean by that that we aren't to have our eyes open to evil when it does appear. Uh, For example, in Proverbs 22, verse 10, it says, Cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. There comes a time when we have to act on a situation, when you have someone who is bringing evil into the congregation. I don't know that that's happening right now. I don't know of anything. But from time to time in every congregation, you have situations that come up where you do have to deal with a person because that person is is causing contention or or strife within the congregation. Uh, We must make judgments about people based on evidence. For example, in verse 24, Proverbs 22, 24, it says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. There comes a time when you have to make honest judgments based on the evidence that is there. And when you see someone who is always angry, always flying off the handle, God tells us, avoid that person lest you become like him. So you have to see evil where it does exist. But overall, God wants us to have a positive approach in life. Philippians 4, very common passage for us, Philippians 4. Some of you who have minds to memorize, no doubt have it memorized. Philippians 4, verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, contrast this with our daily news and getting caught up in it. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report as opposed to evil report, If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's what you should fill your mind with, the positive, instead of all the negative. We have to be aware of the negative in our world, 
but we need to focus on the positive in life. Back in 1 Corinthians 13, once again. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. It says, love suffers long. You could make a sermon on any one of these statements. And you can meditate on these. And we have morning services today. So we have all afternoon we could go and meditate on this and think, how does this apply to me? Not the other person, but me. How does it apply to me? Love suffers long. It's, it, I always love it. It suffers long. Long-suffering. We talk about patience, but this is long-suffering. It's not short-suffering, but long-suffering. And is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, put itself forward. It's not puffed up, not filled with vanity. Does not behave rudely toward others. Does not seek its own, always having to have its own way. Is not provoked, and it thinks no evil. Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So, brethren, it is our human nature to believe the worst and to think evil sometimes when there is none. But God has called us to a better way, the way of love. 